yeah, like this is a this is a deliberate like, like this almost feels to me like the title crawl of a Star Wars movie where like in the yellow text you get the introduction <laughs> and and honestly like I I only say that half tongue in cheek because that's for me at least a helpful tool like the rest of John's gospel doesn't feel like this it doesn't have that sort of ominous heavy poetic kind of language it becomes a story and characters talk and think and usually obey the rules of storytelling uh, where there's not an omniscient narrator except every so often John can't resist and say Jesus said this in order to you know predict or Jesus said this in real life most of the time it's just a story. Um, where, where characters talk, but this beginning part introduces us to the world and why this story needs to be told. And and I think that's why it's called John's prologue, yeah. right? Because it has such a different feel that it's almost like, uh, you know, this is the prologue, and then then the story starts, and that's like chapter one of your book. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's important, helpful information, but it has such a different feel. It's poetry. Yeah, and to recognize. Like not to get too too far into the weeds of like textual criticism and things like that. There's sometimes people will say this is so different; it just doesn't fit. This must have been somebody else wrote. Well, maybe not. Maybe this is somebody's like this is the poetic way you need to start and open the story. The same way the opening crawl of a Star Wars movie is an essential part of the whole movie, but you need it feels different at the beginning, and now the movie changes. The, the story changes after this prologue, but it's certainly possible you could have somebody write this and then change the storytelling approach. Well, I think this is John's way of setting up his purpose for writing his gospel. Exactly. You know, all the gospel writers have their own purpose. Like you mm -hmm. said, Mark's an action, action, action movie. You know, he just wants to get right into it. You know, if he's short, he's sweet. He's probably the first one to be written. Mm -hmm. And so he needs to get down all the major points. Mm -hmm. You know, and so the birth narrative wasn't really something that was celebrated. You know, wasn't really that much of a concern. Right as Christianity was started, it was more about getting to the point that Jesus lived among us, died for us, was raised from the dead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And so he, you know, that genealogy that he gives us shows us that Jesus is Jewish. I mean, mm -hmm. he's one of the most Jewish guys that you can have. And Luke, writing to a Greek audience, you know, he has his purposes for... Mm -hmm. So this, I read this as just John's way of saying, you know what, I'm writing a gospel of theology here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily a gospel of historical... Right, right, right. You know... Retelling that those are already been written, like those, yeah. You have those. Let yeah. me tell you the, uh, the theology, of yeah. Jesus yeah, yeah. Christ. There's, there's this bit from a uh, children's movie. I'm a little bit embarrassed to be quoting this for depth, but it's the movie my kids loved for a while for a couple years ago. Uh, the movie is called Home. Um, and it was based on the children's book, The True Meaning of Smekte, but it involves an alien and a girl who are friends. And at one point in the movie version, at least. Um, they take a look at Vincent Van Gogh's Starry Night painting, and the alien's like, this is a terrible painting, that's not what stars look like. And the human character goes, this is how stars feel. It's not, painting isn't about what they look like, it's about how they feel, and that's important. You need that. And, and this sort of becomes an important idea, that oh, in, instead of the overly woodenly literal way of hearing things that the alien has, the idea of sometimes you can mean more than just what the words say. Um, and that I think that's kind of how John approaches his gospel, that it's sort of like, you already have stories about Jesus went here, Jesus went there. He's constantly asking the what does it mean, the why is this, um, and trying to say that everything Jesus did was loaded with intentionality, not that Jesus sort of stumbled into episodes by random chance. The other thing I think that John is definitely trying to do in his opening words, he couldn't drop a heavier hand if he tried, is in the beginning, 
the, was the word. Like, that's deliberately an echo of the opening of, of the creation story out mm-hmm. of Genesis 1. And that John is really, really, really leaning hard on what later on Christianity will say, like, this is, this is Jesus' divinity here. But that what can be said of God, the same God whom uh, ancient Israel worshipped and understood as the one creator of the universe, you can say of Jesus, who is this word, this logos of God. Um, and that even, we'll, we'll talk about this later on maybe, um, but like even the, the way Christianity came to talk about, well, the Father and the Son are the same substance, that you don't, they're, not, they're not different hats on the same person, but the Father and the Son are somehow two and yet of the same being. You get this, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and like, there's this sort of like, I'm talking about one, but it's kind of plurality, um, that later Christianity will just sort of call the Trinity. But like the, the, the seeds for that are here. It also echoes, uh, I think it's Proverbs 8. Oh, about wisdom. Right, right. It, like both Proverbs 8 and John 1 has that such a similar language to Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. That they're both like trying to point back to the creation story while also trying to say something new. It, it kind of reminds me of like those writing exercises that you'd have to do in like English class, <laughs> where you would be given a poem or uh-huh. Shakespeare's sonnet, and you would say, be told, "Okay, take this form and kind of take maybe the basic idea, but say your own thing." Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of that's that's the feel that I always get from John one is this writing exercise back from high school English of here's the form, here's the basic thought yeah but say something new that is still true mm-hmm. or i think about like when a music composer will take like a melody that already existed and they'll write something new that clearly incorporates the original but somehow it's, it's their own new thing like in my head um like i, I hear aaron copeland's uh appalachian spring which has this melody that is a hymn melody that some people call the shaker tune the shaker hymn some people call the lord of the dance um that tune um, and it was an existing melody, and, and Copeland put it into this other piece that now, like, in my head, I, I recognize you could just sing it straight as the hymn, or it's this whole you know, bigger orchestral work that is clearly riffing on this earlier thing, but it's doing a whole new thing. But yeah, that idea of almost like what a jazz musician does, is taking a melody and now it becomes this whole new creation. Um, and the, the, the whole idea that they're riffing on something is part of, is, it's part of it. Like, you can't, you, you don't dismiss it and say that's less of work of art because they took an idea that existed already. There's part of the artistry is look how they took this thing and then made it say something new. Um, but yeah, that's definitely what John and the, and the writer of Proverbs 8 is doing, yeah. They both, those, those, those two biblical writers, both seem to be getting at a similar idea even though they use slightly different words for it. In, in Proverbs, the concept gets translated wisdom. Uh, I think the Hebrew is chokamah. But the idea of like the, 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 the wisdom, like the, the design, the orderliness, the purposeness of God is personified and speaks. She, she speaks and invites yeah. people to her house. Um, and then the idea of in, in John's gospel, the, it gets translated word, but the, the Greek word there is logos, and it, it's where we get our word logic. So again, it's kind of got that idea, not just of saying anything, but of order, design, purpose, logic, reason, that's a, a, sort of a kissing cousin of the idea of wisdom, I think. Yeah, it's... um. I wrote a paper on this in seminary where I compared those three texts, Mm. Genesis 1, Proverbs 8, and John 1, with the idea of Lady Wisdom Mm -hmm. and Jesus the Word Mm -hmm. is the same 
part of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. And so Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 8 is like an early wrestling with the Trinity, mm -hmm. even though that like theology <laughs> and that, that like concept isn't really like fully fleshed out because this is pre-Jesus. But yet it's kind of, it's that, that same thought of, you know, that God wasn't alone in creation, even if God is like all encompassing. Right. Like, like that, that's, that's so hard to say because our language is so flawed that and limited that I can't really say this without like being heretical. I <laughs> wrestle with this idea. We'll, we'll temporarily set down our rocks, but <laughs> right, right. That you know that you know Proverbs eight is trying to come across the concept that God created us in wisdom with wisdom, um, and similarly John one is trying to say Jesus was there at creation, and you know because of Jesus, we have been able to be created. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's, again, it's, it's really hard to kind of like wrestle with this idea, but, um, but, but yeah, I think they're trying to get at kind of that same root thing about we were created by God who desired to be in relationship with us and that this was an intentional thing. Mm -hmm. Um, that this relationship is intentional on God's part, um, and it is rooted in God's love for us. Yeah, yeah. So the idea of in God's nature, there's relationships that God is not like some like solitary brooded fellow, like in the old you know Joan Osborne song, "What if God was one of us?" You know, like, like yeah, yeah, like yeah. God already exists in relationship in God's own being, and then creates other beings who are not God who can share in relationship as well. So that God is both the agent of creation through the word and through the wisdom, but also makes us in relationship to each other as God already exists in relationship in the Trinity. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And to me it feels like the only kind of human language that gets close to this is poetry. This is why we get this in poetry, because any other attempt we have ends up either becoming some kind of heresy, something like, no, 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 you've gone too far, or you've said it wrong or something, or we end up drawing impossible diagrams. You know, like, and... and Theology that is done as diagram, I think, like, watch out, that's dangerous. <laughs> like, be, be careful if, if your picture of God it can be reduced to a diagram. Um, but, like, yeah, that poetry is the only kind of human language because we know poetry is saying more than just the mere words, and, and there's more going on there. It's how the stars feel, not how they look, that yes, kind of thing. Yes, yes. Um, that, 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 that seems like this is the only way that, that John can do the task that he has, if he's convinced he has to tell us about creation to introduce us to Jesus. Yeah, because poetry, to, to lean into good metaphors spoken by cartoons, um, <laughs> and going to Shrek, poetry is like onions. Right. Right? Yeah. There's, the different, there's the different layers <laughs> where, um, you know, the, the, especially John chapter 1 you know, there is some truth that is being, being spoken that is literal. Mm -hmm. And then there is some truth that's also being spoken figuratively. Mm -hmm. And then there's also some truth that's being spoken that's just how it feels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's an onion. And well, I, 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 think, I think the way you describe it is so helpful to me. Like, for, for a phrase of light out of this prologue, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it or grasp it. Because, like... 
John is not literally reporting on a historical event that somebody lit a candle. I mean, like, again, like yeah. you, you would be misreading John if he said, ah, this is the story of when God lit a candle before sending... No, th- this is a metaphor about what the coming of Jesus is like. It's like a, dark, a light in a dark place, and the, the, no matter how dark the night is, the, the, the light is still there. Um, the, and, and John is reaching for some way of describing, and so metaphor is the only way, poetry is the only way he has, yeah. That's one of my favorite lines, is the light shines in the darkness, the darkness has not overcome it. Yeah. Partially, I think, because it, it goes back to that Isaiah passage, sure. people walking in darkness have sure. seen a great light. Sure. This is that great light that was promised right. centuries beforehand. Sure. It's finally here among us. Sure. And like sure. you said, it's not, a, it's not the sun, it's not a candle, it's not a physical mm-hmm. light, but it's this metaphorical light that just outshines any darkness right. that we might have in our lives. Right. And to me, that even that like is, is a helpful like a, 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 a case in point of like how to read the Bible and understand like there are times when someone that when a biblical writer is talking about if, like later on when somebody actually lights a lamp puts on a lampstand, that's a literal light. Mm-hmm. But here we were talking about there it would be it would be a misreading of scripture to treat it as there, there, is this a candle? Is it an oil lamp? No, that's not the point. This is true without it being something that is literal. Yeah. And to get that, oh, there are some times when, yes, this verse from John, John 1 5, is true, but it is not describing a historical event. How can that be? Yeah, that's, that's what John's intention is, is to sell something that is deeper than something that is a mere, represent, a mere reference to a historical act or event or something. The other line that I think often gets picked up on that bears an awful lot of theological weight comes in uh, verse 14. And the word became flesh and lived among us and we've seen his glory, glories of a father's only son. So can I say I love Eugene Peterson's translation? Oh yeah, yeah, talk about that, yeah. So in the message, Eugene Peterson um, translate that, that verse this way. And God put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I'm not necessarily a huge message fan. I mean, I love Eugene Peterson, great man. You know, he was a wonderful theologian. Just not a huge fan of, of his translation, but that verse, oh, yeah, paraphrase. Sorry, <laughs> I keep using the you know that paraphrase of that verse. Mm-hmm. Like I just the first time I read it, I fell in love with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is the paraphrase again? God put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. That idea of moving into the neighborhood, yeah, and that, that idea of dwelling among us, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, because that I, I, that is a helpful imagery, and like I, I struggle with Eugene Peterson because. I very much view his work as a paraphrase, but people treat it like a translation, yes. and that kind of just grates on. Uh, and on I'm the same way I use the wrong terminology. But, uh, yeah. but but yeah, that's my own like personal like mm-hmm. garbage. <laughs> um, but but he he, it is, I think it is very helpful when either we take somebody else's modern like putting it into his own words, like Eugene Peterson. Or into our own words to kind of get grasp it differently, mm-hmm. and that moving into the neighborhood, I think, is so helpful because just thinking like you know the poetry of, and he lived among us, like mm-hmm. because that's poetry, like it's helpful to think of, oh yeah, he moved into the neighborhood. That's what it means to like live among us. Right. Um, like that's more concrete. That's more grounded. That's more conceptual like we can conceptualize that of you know there's a moving truck there's a truck you hear the beeping (laughs) right right um there's all that person's stuff and Mm -hmm. oh look they have a dog that's yippy and we're gonna have to listen to that yippy dog and and the idea of moving in suggests residency as opposed to like 
sometimes like the ancient Greeks would picture the gods coming and visiting just to mess with humans. You know, like, yeah, so, like, right. or, or like in the movie Death Takes a Holiday, or what was the the uh, Meet Joe Black was the remake of that, where it's like this sort of supernatural being wants to experience what it's like to be human because they have some lack in their existence and they experience humanity just to get it checked off the list and then they go back to their supernatural realm. But the, the gospel doesn't talk about God is lacking. God doesn't know what it like. It feels like to be human, so God has to take a field trip or spring break to Earth. It's more of this. Idea permanency of God being with us, among us, that yeah, moving in. that you're in community, that yeah, you're participating. Yeah. There's permanency. And right. it's not just like the monks, you know, of the early church fathers who were out and, and out in the desert all by themselves, like right. doing their thing. Like, God's not out there somewhere, like he's on earth, but he's out there. No, he moved into the right. neighborhood. Right, like, right. he is living amongst us, you know, throughout the, I forget which gospel it is, it might be multiple ones, he said, well... Isn't this Joseph's son? Right. Like, I mean, he grew up next door. Right. Like, this is a kid that we knew that grew up. You know, this isn't God just showing up as an adult. Right. This is God coming as a child and living among us. Yeah. Yeah. And that's honestly one of my favorite names this time of year for God as a man for Jesus as Emmanuel, God yeah. with us. Um, because of this idea that God, you know, it's not just visiting for a time. He's yeah. not just you know saying, "Oh, what's it like to be human?" No, He actually becomes human. Yeah. Now, all that said about the beauty of that paraphrase, I also think it's worth spending a moment on the beauty of the language John uses that we translate as lived among us or dwelt among us because the Greek is carrying a lot more than our English translation does because the, the, the Greek of the word um, it has, has the same root for pitching a tent. So it's, it's a camping mm-hmm. image and it, re- mm-hmm. it, it echoes back to the tabernacle that God yeah. pitched. You know? like, so in, in back in Israel's ancient memory, how do they picture God being among us? They literally had 40 years where God, the glory of God, you know, comes down in this sort of fire tornado and pitches a tent, like lives in this tent with them. And everybody knew on the best days, God doesn't live in the tent, but we need this physical, this this visual poetry of where is God? Sure, God is ever, but God is among us, with us, going on the journey. And when God picks up, we follow after, and then we make camp again. God goes into the tent and lives with us. Um, and... Even that imagery of a tent as opposed to a temple, like this, not, this isn't God's gilded cage where God has to stay, but like God's here among us, but God's free to pick up and move to the next place, and then we'll, we'll, it's, it's among us, not in this particular holy ground or something like that. And, and I think that's a helpful reminder, especially thinking of the Israelites in the wilderness post Exodus. Mm-hmm. Because to think about that, you're wandering for indefinitely for them, like, right? Mm-hmm. Like they have no idea how long they're going to be in the wilderness, mm-hmm. however long it takes. Um, but they're, you know, to be committed to carrying this tent that you don't actually live in, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, putting it up every time you stop for God and having that be a place that is set apart for God, like that's quite some dedication mm-hmm. when you also have to think about, oh, I also have to put up my family's tent and I need to find some firewood and, Oh, I see that God just dropped a bunch of quail for us again, so I should go get my ration of quail as well. But first, I have to put up God's tent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that I think, is quite a bit of dedication. Like, you know, it's... That's... I feel like, to me, that's even more living among mm-hmm. us as opposed to, like, if God were to live in our physical church buildings. Right, right, right. Because, like... The church buildings, they're just there. Like, right. yeah, we have to do some to maintain them, but it's not quite to the everyday participation that is 
taking down the tent, carrying it with us right. until we get to the next camping spot, and then putting it back up. Like, that is quite a bit of daily participation. Yeah, and to me, like you said, the, 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 the idea, the image of God being with us is so much clearer in a temporary structure. Because, like, in a church building, especially in this era, in this pandemic, when, like, church buildings are often not being physically used because we're, you know, whether you're temporarily suspending worship or... But, like, like the, the building very clearly doesn't house God, but, man, it can be tempting to sort of treat, well, that's God's area, and then it becomes removed in distance. So, I guess we're on our own and God isn't with us. No, because the, the, the correct way of thinking about it, the Scriptures would tell us, is God's always been among us, whether in big groups or small groups, but we don't all have to go to one building for God to be with us. And so the, the, the verb that John uses here, uh, for li- that gets translated, lived among us or dwelt among us, is, is, is a much richer picture that sort of, that sort of ima- imagines either moving in, like, like Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, or pitched a tent and camped out with us, but that it's among us, not in a particular spot of real estate, that makes God's communion with us. This is just kind of random, but I'm thinking, you know, I remember in seminary, one of my professors saying, you know, God tabernacled us. Yeah, exactly. That's, That's what you're getting at, Steve. And, and I'm thinking about that Jewish festival, the festival of booths, you know, when they... Set up little tents. You know, they set up tents, and if you go, like, you know, at least the Hasidic Jews still to this day, like, they, are, they set up literal tents, and they live in those tents for seven days. Mm-hmm. You know, like, how much this would connect to a Jew... Like during that festival, exactly. like this sure, particular sure, sure. verse would connect to a, a Jewish person during that festival, told, yeah. and mm-hmm. that reminder, you know, that the tabernacle was amongst us. Now I'm living in my own little tent, mm-hmm. and like, wait a second, God doesn't just tabernacle yeah. amongst us in the wilderness, right, or in the temple. But now he, He's come and not only tabernacled amongst us, but He's right. put on flesh. Like, wait right. a second. Right. You know, like, just, you know, how mind-blowing that could be for someone of Jewish heritage, especially in the time of Jesus, you know, to hear this and realize, oh, this is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And the idea that it's the tabernacle, this temporary structure rather than the temple seems important because it becomes super easy for the permanent structure to be misunderstood. As mm-hmm. This is where God lives and we have to come to this location. Whereas a temporary structure like a tabernacle is, oh, it's wherever we are, that's where mm-hmm. God chooses to come. God coming among us, not us going up to some holy magical place. Yeah. And again, not to go too, too far afield of our conversation for today, but when what we call the New Testament ends by possibly a different guy named John and envisions the new creation, it's God coming down, as it were, in the new creation, coming down to where we are, uh, rather than people ascending and floating up somewhere. And the, the, the imagery is striking and important, especially in the face of how much pop religion pictures when you die, your soul floats up somewhere like a helium balloon, um, when instead the imagery at the end of Revelation at the new creation is the God who comes among us yet again in a yet more full way. Yeah. There's one other word that I think is doing a lot of heavy lifting in that same verse that is worth spending time on, and it's the word flesh. Um, because again, in, in, in English, even, even in English, that still has sort of a grittiness that just body doesn't necessarily. Um, but it's the same word like flesh that is much more connected to your meat, you know, in, in, in the ancient Greek. It's, it's, you know, like our word sarcophagus comes from that word sarx, and which is a you know, coffin that devours your flesh or meat. But like it's that sense of like, to be human is basically to be a walking meat bag. I mean, like, let, let's not glorify ourselves. We are basically walking bags of meat. And there's something messy and gritty and 
undignified about seeing ourselves that way. And instead of, because there, there would be later on fights the early church had to have on, well, did God really have, did God really get in the physicality? That seems so messy. That seems beneath God. Surely this physical world, God is, is above all that, right? So God, you know, just didn't, didn't God appear to have a body? Or even just picking a different word, like body feels less gritty or less messy. But to hear the word flesh, to know it's the same word that in the ancient, in ancient Greek you used for meat. Like, you can't get away from the sheer physicality of us. Um, and to say that God takes that on is a lot more than just, and God appeared as a human. Like, we talked last in our last episode about the challenge of depicting an angel, right? Mm-hmm. And about how even at their best, the, you know, every movie that's ever been made sort of makes these sort of like not really realistic looking sort of like, Christmas pageant, white robe-wearing figures. And you're like, that doesn't even really look real. But, like, here there's this very, very gritty... There's no, there's no like, gauzy coloring over the lens. There's, it's just like God becomes as rawly human as we are. All the way down to our meat. <laughs> um, are there any other things that you think we ought to have in the back of our mind as we hear these words from John's Gospel um, here in this Christmas season? Well then, here's what I'm going to suggest. Um, next time when we have conversation, um, let's pick up some of these threads that we left here. We spent our time pretty much here just in the Gospel of John, the first chapter. But the early church in those first several centuries sort of fleshed out the ideas that are laying here, the seeds that are here, uh, even when they draw on earlier things, and became really, really important conversations that like the church like went to fight over <laughs> in the first several centuries. Really? Yeah, literally fought, <laughs> sometimes slapping each other. Um, and why it matters, what they decided, what their conversation was, and how this becomes a leading into that. So um, stick a pin in the conversation. Merry Christmas, and we'll join you next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Merry Christmas. Bye.